You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi ramen isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Guy Allen, a sushi blogger based in New York City. Guy fell in love with sushi at a very young age and has been exploring the world of sushi globally since then. And you can find his discoveries on Instagram and at the Sushi Guide. His reviews are so unique and fascinating, and his photos are so stunning that he has been invited to dine at great sushi restaurants in Tokyo. So today we'll discuss Guy's diverse experiences at sushi restaurants, his criteria for great sushi, why sushi is universally appealing to diners of all ages, and much, much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Guy Allen. Hello, Guy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Akiko. So, I've been excited. I, it's, it's hard to imagine you went to Japan. You were invited to dine at the great sushi restaurant, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But first, um, to get to know you, where are you from? And what did you eat when you grew up? Sure. Um, yeah, it was an exciting trip to Japan. I, I went just last month and I'm planning another trip in the fall of 2023. Um, like most people, I haven't been, I hadn't gone uh, for many years because the country was closed due to COVID. So now trying to um, pack in as many trips as I can. But I, I am from the New York area um, and I still live now in New York. So I've been here for most of my life. And growing up, um, I, I definitely ate a lot of sushi only because my parents are, are very into the food. And um, I think in general, people who grow up in this area, I think, are more into sushi than other parts of the country. I think because the suburbs of Long Island and New Jersey and Westchester and Connecticut, there, there seems to be a lot of sushi restaurants that Um, have been around since the 90s. So people from my generation um, really love sushi. All my friends eat sushi. Most people I know appreciate it, maybe um, some more than others, but uh, it is a very popular food and and has been for many years on the East Coast. Mm. I I keep hearing uh, the sushi quality in New York is really, really high and probably they say the best of the world outside Japan. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. So when and how did you get into sushi? Like, you know, you said your parents loved it, but do you have any 
last age that you really personally started to love sushi? Yeah, I think in my probably my early is um, when sushi started to get really popular here in New York is around 10 years ago. Um, I think up until then, New York was like most big cities, American style sushi, um, a lot of rolls, a handful of high quality restaurants that you would maybe go to on special occasions. But 10 years ago, um, places started to open at a very rapid pace. And now we're at a point where omakase and very high quality omakase is kind of the norm. Um, The expectations and the bar has been set really, really high because over the last three, four years, a a new restaurant opens in New York almost every week or two. So we now have over a hundred omakase restaurants in New York City, and if you looked at that number ten years ago, it was probably ten restaurants. Mm. So I started really to get into it. Um, I think also around this time, because I, I just had more exposure to it. I, I was able to try new things, um, be exposed to this higher quality, and um, at that point, I wanted to just continue to try more. Uh, go to more restaurants, do more traveling, and eat more sushi. Mm, right. Well, uh, you mentioned the rolls, but uh, you know, some people were talking about edomai sushi, which is a rice bowl, a tiny piece of rice topped with fresh cut, um, fresh raw fish. So, and some people are scared of eating raw fish, even. But uh, what I think is the key point of sushi as food. Like, why do you like sushi? Um, so much as a food? I think it starts with liking seafood in general. I think anyone who loves or, or has the ability to love sushi, um, I've always been into all seafoods, cooked fish, shellfish, shrimp, lobster, everything. So I love seafood to start, but sushi in particular, and especially like you said, Edomai sushi is very, very special because one, it's a very simple food. It's very healthy, and I guess for me personally, I I really like the art form, and there's a certain appreciation of what it takes to create this food. Um, you know, when you go to a really high-end sushi restaurant, I, I've talked to so many chefs over the years, and I've done a lot of research and reading about exactly what goes into making one piece of nigiri this very simple bite which is like you said and a little bit of raw fish is an incredibly complex and expensive and um and skill requiring technique and it's because i know what goes into it, it it's just very special when you go and have this food because it's not something that you can make. Um, I think that's one thing that that separates sushi from maybe any other food besides like extreme molecular gastronomy, which is you can't you can't just make it. Even if I had the skills, which I don't, none of us do. Even if I had the skills to make this food, it would cost so much more money to make 
an equivalent omakase meal in my home. So you can't just do it yourself. Unlike, you know, good Italian food, you can create a recipe, good French food, other, most cuisines, you can find recipes and create amazing foods in your home. You can't do it with sushi. It it will just never be as good. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's unique in that way. You have to go to a restaurant and dine with these, with these great chefs. Right. Yeah. It's a, you know, like the Jiro, the the film Jiro Dreams of Sushi really de- uh, describes everything. It's it's a more like way of like judo, kendo, like spirituality included. So it's not just like looking at a recipe you can reproduce. And I've never tried myself. Um, yeah, and then you said the art form. So you studied your Instagram blog about five years ago, uh, which is you really captures beautifully these uh, forms of art. So why did you start? I think mostly because I, I've always been into photography at the time. There were, I think five, six years ago is when these food blogs on Instagram and online started to really take off. Um, and at the time, there were really only a handful of high-end pages. Most of them were not in the United States. Most were in Tokyo and Japan. There, at the time, there was only one in New York City that was like that featured high-end sushi and so I just thought I could bring my own perspective um, and at the same time let me try different restaurants let me um, you know use some of my photography um, hobby that that I wanted to to use on something and so I think if I if I looked at the the sushi world today, I honestly, I probably wouldn't even try to start it because there's so many food blogs. There's so many sushi blogs, but five years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm. So there was just uh, like, like an opening where someone like me could go and, and maybe just share good pictures with the world. Mm. Well, actually I'm looking at your Instagram photos and it's just stunning. And of course, the camera quality and smartphones and everything uh, becomes uh, really improved. That exactly right. So it's amazing. I, it makes me so hungry. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> and uh, so, how often do you go to sushi restaurants? At this point, I'll go usually once a week. Um, I think pre-COVID, I was going twice a week, and that still is the case. Once in a while, the most I'll do is three, but um once is kind of the the norm yeah and a lot of times it will be a new restaurant that opens up um i'll try to help the new chefs and take some good photos for them and and put up a review and kind of tell new yorkers what the newest omakase bars are so people can can just be aware because there are so many now and i like helping these these chefs and restaurant owners kind of reach the right mm. the right people right and how do you choose the restaurants to review so typically if there's a new restaurant where either i know the chef or the chef was referred to me from someone another good chef that i know i'll, I'll try to go to all the new omakase bars again just because I like helping the new restaurants. They, they actually need this kind of exposure more than anyone. So if it's a new place, um, I'll, I'll always give them a shot. And obviously, if the food is good, I'll, I'll, I'll always give a very positive review. And then besides 
new openings, I have kind of a of chefs that I really like restaurants that I've liked for many years that I'll, I'll go to, you know, every, every few months mm, or so. Right. And so what are the criteria uh, of good, good sushi restaurant for you? Um, for me, I am more concerned about food quality than atmosphere and vibe and decor. I think some people really value that, especially if they're paying, you know, two, three hundred dollars a meal People want that sort of experience, which I totally get. I think I'm the same way sometimes, but to me, the food is the number one criteria. I personally have an affinity for a more traditional kind of menu, Edomai style, um, but there are so many different styles in New York now that I, I enjoy them all. I think it's really interesting to try different ones out because um, there's a there's definitely a variety mm, right and for example um people really choose it's like you know like a basic hamburger the classic burger is the criteria of good burger place or something like that so when it comes to sushi what ingredient ingredients do you use as a criteria to evaluate the quality of sushi i think typically if chefs use mostly japanese fish that's usually a good sign. Um, I, I also give extra bonus points for chefs that get a little bit more creative than, you know, the standard nigiri. For example, if a chef has four tuna pieces in a 12-course menu, I, I think that's not as inventive as some of these other chefs that like to use different types of smaller hikarimono uh, silverfish and... Um, chefs that that you know take the time to use more difficult fish like kohada like saba um like you know hokkaido crabs for example um yeah it just comes down to ingredients i think there's a lot of good local fish as well like for example um new england and boston have very good tuna very good scallops so it doesn't all have to be Japanese or foreign ingredients, but typically if you're using a wide variety of fish, um, the best ones are in Japan. So that's always a good start if the chef is using those. Yeah. Um, personally, I like Kohada because it's a, it's a gross fish and I keep changing the name as they get bigger. And then Kohada is the second, it's like seven to 10 centimeters, which is like, you know, ranges. And really uh, shows chef's preference, the style, and also the balance of salt and vinegar. And then whenever I go to Japan, especially, um, Kohara is always something I test with. <laughs> and I think it's good to have certain, um, you know, fish. Whenever you go to, as listeners go to this restaurant, Akami, Akami really reflects how they source good tuna and all those things. So I really think it's a good idea to have favorite um, piece of fish that you always order. So anyway, so. Yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I think Kohada is a good one to use as like a barometer. Obviously, it takes a lot of skill to make it right. So if a chef is presenting a, a really good Kohada or, or even other silverfish, um, I think that that really shows that they've been doing it for a long time. They really know the mm, craft. Right. 
Okay, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into some of the most fascinating restaurants Guy has reviewed. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Koin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese on HRN Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katayama, and my guest today is Guy Allen, a social blogger based in New York City. You can find his discoveries on Instagram under the Sushi Guide. So um, just let's continue the specific part of sushi, how it's made. So chefs are crazy about their sherry or rice recipes. And sushi rice is made with premium grain rice and vinegar, sugar, and salt and water. So it's simple, but sushi rice flavor uh, can be very different. And it's very important to determine the quality of sushi and the quality of chef. So what types of sherry have you seen and what is your favorite type of sherry? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, the rice is, is very important. I don't think it's well known in the states the the hierarchy of the sushi ingredients and it's something that i i also learned um not that long ago when i when i started getting into sushi and researching but um i think most people are surprised to hear that the rice is actually the more important ingredient when you talk to chefs um even when you talk to most sophisticated diners uh the rice is the most important ingredient and then the fish is secondary and so it really all starts there. And so I personally like Akazu, which is, I think, the preferred um, style for most Edomai chefs. Um, it has a little bit more bite. And um, that's been the one that's most frequently used for a lot of new restaurants in New York. I know in Tokyo and Japan, it's also very popular. Mm, I agree. Um, Akazu means a red vinegar. And uh, apart from regular rice vinegar, which is based on, you know, the the regular fermentation, but Akazu is made with uh, sake leaves, which naturally includes more umami. And uh, it gives a nice red color. So, yeah, that's my favorite too. And I, I think on your Instagram and there's one akazu that's a sushi mumi in New York City. I think it shows a beautiful akazu rice. So if listeners wants to see what akazu, yeah, that's right? Akazu rice is just so. That's a good example of they just opened. Um, I want to say a month ago, a month or two ago, very new restaurant. The chef there trained at Sushi Ginzo Nadera, which is 
one of the highest end restaurants in New York. They've they've been around for a very long time, and their chefs are typically uh, Japanese trained, and that's where this particular chef learned that to use that type of vinegar because um, the the very experienced Japanese chefs at Ginzo Nadera that's how they mm. teach. That's their style, and at Sushi Mumi, they they're using the same techniques. Right. And uh, so now I'm sure our listeners' burning question is what your favorite sushi restaurants are. So can you share your thoughts with our listeners? Yeah, that's that's probably the most common question I get. A lot of people ask, what what's your favorite place? I have a birthday. Where should I go? Um, I think it's it's really an impossible question to answer because I think sushi, unlike other cuisines, has so many different styles that my personal favorite place will definitely not be the same for a lot. And and I'm a student of kind of the sushi industry myself. I'm always asking people that I respect what their favorites are. And once a year or so, I'll do a poll. I'll ask, you know, 30, 40 people from all over the country that I know are very uh, knowledgeable in the sushi kind of world, what their favorites are, and I get a lot of different answers. And so I I know that everyone has their own preferences. So I would say, for example, if you really like rich, fatty tuna, some people love tuna specifically. You'll ask them their favorite. They might say their favorite chef is um, Ichimura who specializes in aged tuna. He has a lot of uh, special chutoro and otoro pieces that are like his signatures. If you happen to like Hikarimono, you might say your favorite place is Nakaji, which is in Chinatown, a very, very traditional restaurant. And his specialty are the kohada, are the, the sabas of the world, and he comes from um, his entire his entire family come are sushi chefs. His dad was a sushi chef, grandfather. So he's learned very old techniques for making hikarimono. So a lot of people say that 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 is their favorite. Um, I've heard people say that their favorite is Naz sushi Naz on the Upper East Side because it has a little mix of all of these different. Um, these different features and they also have a very classy and traditional Japanese style omakase bar. The interiors and decor are very beautiful. Some people care more about that. And so I personally actually don't even have a favorite. I would say if I'm in the mood for one particular type of sushi or another, I'll, I'll, you know, on any given night like that. But I don't think there's an answer for, what's the best sushi restaurant um even even in in tokyo where i just came from uh, i also asked a lot of people who who visited the top restaurants you know what their favorites are and everyone has a different answer because again every chef has a slightly different style and um it really comes down to personal preference mm, right so your answer i think is uh, the perfect answer <laughs> yeah yeah th- there's there's no answer and and i do think it's very difficult to compare the really high end 
expensive um, sushi restaurants to something more middle end. You know, if you're going to pay $500, $600 for a sushi meal, it's, it's a little bit difficult to compare that with something that's $150, which can also be very, very good. But um, it's just not going to be at the same level when chefs are paying for the very best uni at the uni auctions, when they're paying for some of the best tuna from Tokyo to be flown to New York. Um, but, you know, if you ask someone what their favorite is, they might tell you that they would rather spend 150 and get very good quality than spend $500 and get, you know, something a little bit better. But um, it kind of, yeah, it just kind of depends what, what people prefer. Mm, right. And even, you know, the sushi and fish itself also, but also chef really uh, customize uh, their own soy sauce, the sweetness and um, depending on which uh, neta to the fish, they change soy sauce and all those details. And also even the temperature of sherry, the rice, it's so many things that you can compare and you can just something that hits you, you have to remember because it's so special. So, yeah, it's a very profound. Yeah, that's that's correct. A lot of variables, exactly. Right. Okay, so now let's talk about your amazing um, experience in Tokyo. So you were invited to dine at the famous sushi restaurant in Tokyo called the Sugita. And first of all, how did you get lucky to be invited to uh, this uh, place in Japan you invited and then you associated one of the most difficult sushi restaurants to get a seat uh yeah good question i i was invited by a tour company a very special japanese food tour company called plan japan um they happen to have a last minute cancellation for one of their one of their um spots and they invited me and i i booked a ticket um, just a few weeks beforehand, because it, it's really a once in a lifetime type of experience. As you know, it's it's essentially impossible to book the the top restaurants there. There are no reservations available to the public at this point. They really only allow uh, insiders and former former diners to go. So this this very special tour company again, called Plan Japan. They have relationships with basically every top sushi restaurant in Tokyo. Um, It's a very unique situation. The founder there is just extremely well connected. And so, yeah, they they invited me um, in November. And so I went, uh, it was just about a month ago. Mm, Wow. Sounds like you lived a dream (laughs) for a couple of weeks or like a week. Yeah, I was there for a week. I really, I mostly went for for this restaurant, Sugita, but um, I hadn't been to Japan for, for a few years, so I made it a full week in Tokyo, and so I I basically made it my mission just to eat as much sushi as possible, mm. and that, that ranged from, you know, Sugita, which is the top, considered the top restaurant um, in Japan, to, you know, $10 um standing you know sushi lunch spots and so i like when i go there i like to to get a sense of the entire gamut of sushi in japan it's not just it's for me it's not just that these super high-end very exclusive restaurants exist 
And they are incredible. But to me, what's more, I think, more impressive mm. with sushi in Japan is the quality of the lower end sushi, is the quality of the middle range sushi. And it's really mind blowing what, what goes on there with sushi that costs 10, 20, 30 dollars and how good it is. Mm. It's unreal. Hey, I mean, if you go to regular, like very, very regular supermarket, they sell tons of sashimi quality uh, fish and, uh, it's, it's the access and the mindset, the fishing culture and everything. So they can make uh, sushi very accessible and their quality is extremely high. So, yeah, I totally agree. So so what kind of sushi restaurant is Sugita and why is it so famous? It is a very traditional, very minimalist omakase bar. There's eight seats. Um, the chef focuses on using the simplest ingredients he doesn't use any toppings the the pieces are quite large his nigiri are you know maybe one and a half times the size of what we see here in this um that's just his personal style but it's very very basic um even his appetizers it will be one or two ingredients and that's it you know one one example is he'll serve a hokkaido scallop sorry, a Hokkaido oyster and uh, some grated ginger. And that's it. He lets the ingredients speak for themselves. He doesn't overwhelm. Um, there's not a lot of soy sauce on the nigiri because he he's very well connected with the fish market. And so he gets the, the premium fish, the best of the best in Japan go to his restaurant. So he likes to let the fish quality speak for itself. Um, the rice is essentially perfect. And if it's really a special place if you like that kind of style, really traditional. Um, yeah, it's it's a very special place. Again, mostly because you can't just go. I mean, um, just to be able to go once is, is for someone like me, like an opportunity of a lifetime. So I'm grateful to have gone and to try it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful in its simplicity. It's on this very quiet, um, unassuming street in a residential neighborhood. You know, it's not in, it's not in the, the amongst the other fancy Ginza omakase bars that so many people know. It's, it's kind of off, off the tracks a little bit. Mm. Um, very quiet, very, very beautiful. It's just, it's, it's what you imagine when you think of like a, old school sushi restaurant not a lot not a lot of flair um just extremely extremely high quality mm. and i heard a chef goes to uh, to the toyosu market every day <laughs> first thing in the morning and uh that's really like commitment so yeah what kind of a um price point are you talking about at uh, his place so they charge currently forty thousand yen and because of the the exchange rate, that only comes out to today for at two hundred and eighty dollars. So that that's another thing that's pretty special. That so if you compare that price, that's two hundred and eighty dollars including tip, which would be the equivalent of let's say a New York restaurant that is you know two hundred and twenty two hundred and thirty dollars. Because here you do, you do you do pay tip. 
In Japan, you don't. And and that's pretty unbelievable because in New York, $220, $230 is not even the highest price tier anymore. So it's not that expensive. Um, I think I, I've seen that in general in Japan. The food overall is cheaper than in New York, but especially the sushi, even the highest end restaurants who can charge whatever they want. Honestly, I think they could charge over a thousand and they, people would still go. There's a handful of these restaurants that are so exclusive and so special. They'll sell no matter what, but they don't. They don't charge $600. They don't charge a thousand dollars like Masa. Um, I don't know the reason why. I, I, I assume it has to do something with accessibility. Um, maybe there's a humility there where they feel, you know, awkward charging so much money for sushi. But it's it's very different. You know, in New York, we have the most expensive restaurant in the world. Not just sushi restaurant, but restaurant overall. Masa is $950 a person now because they've been raising their prices for so many years. It's an insane price. It's 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 really it's something else. Yoshino, which is the second most expensive, they just raised their price as well to six hundred and fifty dollars. Um, there are several others that are four hundred and above. So they're the, the the prices in New York are only getting more and more expensive um, because you know New Yorkers are willing to pay. Um, you know, it's, it's someone's birthday every day. So people go for special occasions, but in Japan, uh, the, the, the food overall, but the sushi is, is so much cheaper. It's a very stark contrast. Mm, I agree. Um, yeah, the food is very democratic in Japan. I think the mindset is that you have to be fair. Otherwise, I mean, restaurants last for 10, 20 years. That's not rare. That's almost like normal. So you can't right. be, um, you know, unfairly pricing everything without justifying, explaining, because it's a long-term relationship about everything. I think there's a mindset, like an employment. Um, it's a trusting relationship. And I hear like some chefs do not even ask the price to, you know, the, the first market vendors because that's a relationship and you trust. They don't charge you anything crazy because of the built interest in the relationship so yeah and i'm a little concerned about this new york city crazy like 450 that's reasonable and if it's under 300 oh it's pretty reasonable for sushi and that's not democratic and i want everybody to be able to taste that amazing art form like you described earlier so i have a concern about this ridiculous pricing of sushi in new york so, yeah, I hope something is going to change. Uh, maybe the recession may yeah. change it. Uh, from what I've seen, it's only going the other way. Every So I, I keep a list of all the, the sushi restaurants and the, and the prices. And the last you know few months, every other day, I have to go in and change the price because most places are increasing the prices. One, I think because fish prices are up and... Um, especially during COVID, a lot of these restaurants didn't do so well and they're trying to make up for lost time, which is certainly understandable. But um, yeah, I I think the the standard for what middle range used to constitute is, is different. Um, today, anything under 200 
is considered uh, affordable omakase, mm. I think. Certainly anything under 150. When I really like when I really started to get into this like 10 years ago, nine years ago, we, my favorite restaurant was called um, Ichimura at Brushstroke, which was an omakase bar in Tribeca. And I remember that that started at $150 per person. And in my mind, that was the best place in New York. They eventually raised their price to $200 per person. But again, that was, you know, maybe the top place in the entire city. Um, today, you know, everything is, is double that. So prices have drastically changed over the last few years, for sure. Mm, right. Let's hope for something better. <laughs> silver lining upcoming New Year. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the, the silver lining is there's, there are so many restaurants and there are a lot of affordable ones. Um, that we're very lucky. Um, New York has has this much high quality sushi in in one. Um, it's very special, mm, right? And also the distribution system has been improving. And also, I think Western restaurants started to use that same kind of sushi for their non sushi items. So, yeah, I think um, the infrastructure for sushi is really. Um, I think top of the world in New York. Yeah, that sounds right. So, anyway, so there are many. And, uh, you know, like we talked about this fancy sushi restaurants. And um, um, to me, to be honest, it's kind of intimidating to go to those places. So what are the rules for yourself to be a good guest at the sushi restaurant? And any tips for good manners as a sushi diner? Yeah, it, it is intimidating. It, I guess it depends on... Um, it depends on the chef. Like when I went to Sugita, since it's my first time there, I don't quite know the, the, the chef's preferred behaviors. I think different chefs are either more, um, talkative with their customers. They're more tolerant of different requests, um, than others. Some chefs are, you know, I do things my way. And if a customer decides to ask for something a little bit different, they feel offended. Um, and sh some chefs don't care. They'll, you know, you can ask them to change whatever. And so I think it just depends on the individual chef. For me, if I go to a new restaurant where I don't know the chef, I just like to ask a lot of questions so that I, I understand what exactly they feel is appropriate. Um, I don't want to overstep. And so, I'll, you know, if if a chef, for example, is using really large nigiri and I want them smaller, I'll ask. I'll say, hey, chef, do you, do you think it's possible to – I I don't mind if you keep it your way, but you tell me just so I don't insult the guy. Um, so it's just about asking questions and um, trying not to be – not to impose your – these chefs have have been working at their craft for years, and they all they also have their way they like to. Do. I I like to let them, uh, for the most part, unless there's something egregious that I need changed. Like for example, you know, if a chef is using just way too much um, wasabi, I'll 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 ask. I'll say, hey, do you mind if I have a little bit less? Uh, most chefs are, I think they're open to, to hearing what their customers want. So it's typically not a big problem, mm. um, as long as you're quiet and you ask respectfully. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And also, I think typically people say chefs want you to eat sushi. Even if you're talking, it's like eat at the peak flavor and freshness. So if it's served, you eat it right away rather than leaving it like five minutes. Exactly. Right, right exactly. That's that's <laughs> that's like the number one rule, even though I, I often um, I break that rule because I take so many <laughs> photos. But um, <laughs> the chefs are usually understanding because just because of the, you know, Photography right. is a little because bit you appreciate but. show your appreciation by taking beautiful pictures. So I think exactly, right. exactly, yeah, yeah. And also, I um, one of my chef friends, he um, he said, well, somebody asked, I like toro or toro, so I'm gonna have ten of those. And it's not respectful to other guests because they have only limited supply, and uh, it's not like going to skip steakhouse, keep ordering big steak. It's just you allocate per you know, the turn of the table. So you can't do that. It's like a respect to other guests. That's why he told me. It totally makes sense to me. Yeah, it's also respect for his menu. You know, he he crafts his menu from different fish. The expression matters and the variety matters. And asking for one particular one, it, it almost defeats the purpose. So I totally understand that. Mm, right, like you're right. So this the flow of the flavors, just like French course menu. There is a the flow of from white fish to um, more kind of color, deeper colored fish. That's very well kind of coordinated, designed. Like any chefs. Yeah, yeah, and it makes a big difference in how you enjoy the meal. So that that progression, the way different chefs choose to to serve one fish after another. Sometimes they'll do, most of them do the white fish first, going off into uh, deeper, richer red fish. But sometimes they switch it up and, you know, that's a very purposeful thing. And um, again, that's one of those style, style questions. Some people really like certain order of how fish is served. There's a traditional way, there's other ways and you know, depending on your preference, that'll some people will just have a better experience at with one chef versus another, just based on the order of the fish. Mm, right, it's the best thing is to follow chef's creation, and that really maximizes your experience. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm getting hungry, but <laughs> there, <laughs> there are many great sushi restaurants outside of Japan lately, so. Um, and we have global audience. I mean, the worldwide for Japanese are like 190 countries listeners. So, what city or cities outside Japan are most notable in terms of the quality of sushi restaurants now? I think most of the big metropolitan centers have a really big focus on sushi these days. I mean, New York, just for being so small. Um, area-wise, having over a hundred omakases, I think, is notable. Just there's just a density there. Also, New York seems to be a place where certain very respected Japanese chefs um, are starting to come to open up new restaurants. Unlike you know other closer Asian cities, for example, Yoshino, New York, opened last year, and um, he's. Um, Yoshida-san is, a, is an extremely respected 
three Michelin star Japanese chef. And when, when he decided to leave Japan, he chose New York. Um, and um, uh, Nakazawa-san from Sushi Show, who opened his restaurant in Hawaii uh, several years ago, he's also moving to New York next year, as opposed to going back to Japan or some other big country or, or big city in Asia. So I think looking at New York as, as a place where they can really thrive um, but honestly, Hong Kong has always been a huge sushi city. They have, I think, as many or more omakases than New York does. Their, the quality is extremely, extremely high because they can also get um, the Japanese ingredients very easily. But other, a lot of Asian cities like, you know, Bangkok, for example, is not a place you would think as being a, a big sushi place. Thailand is a place where a lot of people from Japan go to vacation. Um, and a lot of people live there as well. And so Bangkok has an amazing um, sushi industry, um, ranging from extremely high-end Michelin star makases to kind of local Danburi uh, restaurants that are very, very high quality. Um, same with Singapore, even though it's just much smaller. Um, but in the United States, the last three, four, five years, we've seen an incredible increase in in high-end sushi restaurants and i i decided to to write a book just so i can highlight all of these different amazing restaurants that i've started in the last six seven years and um i'm, I'm publishing it actually in two weeks and the way i structured it is um new york san francisco and la have their own chapters because each of these cities has just a tremendous number of restaurants. Um, New York has the most at, I think it's 102 restaurants. LA has uh, around 70 and San Francisco is also getting up there. I can't remember the exact number, but the Bay Area, they have amazing sushi as well. Mm. Um, and then I have a separate chapter for kind of the rest of the country, which includes, you know, Miami has, let's say, 10 really good places. Chicago has a handful Philly has one. There's even there's a high-end sushi restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska now. Portland, Oregon has high-end sushi. Um, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. So, I mean, every Atlanta as well. Every single city, I think, in the U.S. is has at least one high-end place because it's omakase is just getting so so popular. Um, but around the world. Yeah, Paris has fantastic sushi, London as well. And so I think because of the popularity of of high-end omakase and because there's demand for it, I think chefs, Japanese chefs and high-end chefs see that consumers are willing to, to pay and spend really high um, prices for these experiences. So chefs from Japan will travel to you know Australia. They'll go to London and they'll open their own restaurants and and it's just spreading like crazy um yeah there's there's amazing sushi almost everywhere at this point south america brazil has amazing sushi. mexico city has really good sushi i was there last last summer it's it's really everywhere mm, that's amazing and also um what's the book at the title of the book i'm very curious actually it's funny i i'm just <laughs> maybe you can help me 
I'm deciding between two titles. It's the last thing that we're still figuring out before it goes to print. I'm thinking my original thought was um, Sushi in America, the top restaurants and chefs. Uh, I might go a little bit more simplistic and just title it Omakase. And so I'm still oh. figuring it out. What, what, do you, what do you think is better? I think Omakase, hey, hands down. I my personal, because you don't <laughs> limit by naming America. You are limiting uh, by the imagination of what you could see in the book. I think Omakase, I think you have a lot to say about Omakase concept rather than just restaurants in America. So that's my... But this, this particular book is, it's basically of the top right. restaurants in the United States. So that's actually the point mm. of, of this particular book. Um, I would like to do another one maybe next year that includes more countries. But for now, I wanted to highlight the the top places in the U.S. Mm. There's there's so many, and, and a lot of people ask for these lists. Uh, there there are no resources for you know top restaurants in different cities. So uh, this was partly because people asked me to do this, and partly because uh, it's just a fun project. Right. So here you go. You have the first book named America. And then your second one, Omakase. So you have your it. resolution for next year. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. So do you have any plans? Uh, like, you know, which restaurant are you going to visit or any plans um, for the new year and beyond? I, I, I had sushi um, last night, actually, at, at one of my favorite places in the Upper West Side, which is called Takeda, a very traditional restaurant. Um, I probably won't have, actually, I'm going to visit a new restaurant, um, I think later this week and another omakase restaurant open in the West village last week. So I'm going there to check it out and take some photos. Um, besides that, um, nothing, nothing's on the horizon, I think for new restaurants for the next few months, but I'm sure a few will pop up. Um, but in terms of plans, um, I'm actually I'm actually planning out, starting to plan out the next Tokyo trip, which which will be in, uh, in next November. But 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 you really do have to you have to uh, do this in advance if if you want to go to some of the top restaurants or even a lot of the high end middle quality restaurants. You you have to book them really far in advance. So I'm starting that that process today. Mm. Um, you have to, you have to do it early. Right. Sounds like a fun process, and you can look forward to it so much in advance. So, yeah, good luck. Yeah, it's fun. It's a, it's a little intimidating just because, as I'm sure you know, what's what's incredible about um, Tokyo and some some other cities there is. The sheer amount of of high quality restaurants is almost mind boggling. It's almost like you know when someone describes the universe to you and they say there's an endless number of galaxies, galaxies and stars, and there's no end to it. That's how I think about um, good sushi in Japan. You know, if you try to do some research on picking, you know, if you want to pick six restaurants or five restaurants to go to in a two week trip or a week-long trip, it's very difficult. There are so, so, so many. Um, and so it's it's intimidating because you don't want to miss out on, on, uh, on, you know, potentially some incredible place. 
And if you haven't been before, you know, sometimes you have to rely on other people's reviews and opinions. But um, it is very fun. Right. Well, sounds like you have a lot on your plate. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good luck. And uh, so, uh, so listeners, just go to your Instagram, uh, The Sushi Guide, or do you have any other online uh, presence? Yeah, right now it's just the Instagram. It's The Sushi Guide. I, I plan on releasing these lists um, for the top sushi restaurants on a website, which will also be called the sushi guide, but that probably won't be live until, um, maybe the end of January or February. But yeah, the, the idea is just to give people a little bit more easy access to find all these different restaurants in different cities, not just New York. So the website will be coming up and, um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy, you know, documenting the rise of sushi because um, it's just growing and growing every single day. Um, more and more people are, you know, learning to appreciate the, the really high-end sushi restaurants and chefs. And it's it's fun getting to experience it and, and showing people and also helping chefs. I really enjoy helping new chefs who are you know, starting out, a lot of these guys are younger and, um, you know, they're, they're going out on a limb and starting their own businesses. Restaurants are difficult as it is. And I like being in a position to be able to help these guys just reach, reach more people. Cause when there are, you know, hundreds of restaurants, sometimes really good ones can get lost through the cracks and, and that happens sometimes. So I'm always trying to find, kind of the underrated, the low-key places that more people should visit. Mm, right. So you are really an ambassador of the sushi industry. So Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good way to put it. I like it. Ambassador. <laughs> right. So you're going to post uh, your new book on the Sushi Guy on Instagram too when it's ready to come out? Yeah. I'll, uh, in the next week or so, I'll, I'll post, um, you know, some of the highlights, some photos, but, um, you know, I want people to, to be able to, at least get it before the new year. And uh, yeah, it's a really exciting project. I think it's the first kind of list of its kind um, to document all of all of the top places in, in the various cities, not just one city or another. And so it's, it's definitely exciting. A lot of chefs have been really helpful in, in you know, give, showing me their interiors and telling me about how they you know how they create their their nigiri and their sourcing and everything so working with the yeah. chefs with this has also been amazing right okay so i look forward to it so yeah so thank you so much for joining us today guy thank you akiko it was my pleasure um i love the podcast and this was great let's do it again soon um i would love to to talk again maybe maybe next time after i get back from the next uh, japan oh, trip we can sounds awesome. we can catch up and i can tell you a little bit about that as well yeah i'm sure our listeners want to listen to you again too so yeah good luck thank you so much have a great rest of your week hey you too so listeners if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests please contact us at the japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikopatema.com Japan Needs is a weekly program and is always available at heritagevideonetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. The engineer is Anand Spanjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week.
Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.